0: Welcome to episode 16 of the Drew and Luke podcast, selfishly billed as a podcast about stuff I like, with an emphasis on writing. It's paid for by the subscribers of my Patreon account Patreon.com/handy Patreon.com/handy and regularly promoted by Dave Cromie at Nerdgeist.com. Yeah, nerdgeist.com. My new novel, Occupied is billed as MASH for the anti-austerity generation and I want to use the next few pods to talk about storytelling that informed it. And so we come to Justice League International 1987-1990 to 1990, one of the most important and underrated American comics ever. I want to bring new audiences to the subjects under discussion and cater to those already informed old hands who want more, more, more this time there's contributions from friends of the pod Ian Lother, Kieran Flanagan Gavin Luke and noted author James Roberts we're going into a lot of detail but it will be mostly spoiler free following the themes of the stories rather than the plots
1: which shouldn't be on Wikipedia for fuck's sake, Wikipedia sort your shit out my name is Ian Lother, and Andy has asked me to come on here and give my two cents on the comics Justice League International, the issues 1 to 8. Um, have you ever felt that comics are getting too dark, especially DC? Well, if you want something a bit more lighthearted, you should really go and find Justice League International. This comic started around 1987, and at that time, you know, DC had done their their legendary Crisis on Infinite Earths, and a lot of the major characters were getting a a reboot. And usually coming out a lot darker, you had things like Batman, Year One, Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returned, and various others. So, yeah, let's start with the
0: landscape of American comics in the 1980s. So the mid-1980s Western comic book landscape was a turning point which shook up the very form of this storytelling. In the independent market, Art Spiegelman's mouse, based on Holocaust tales, became the first graphic novel, a new term, to win the Pulitzer Prize. Self-publishers were transforming vanity publishing into creative entrepreneurship. Marvel seeded to culture with the subtle tone shift of noir anti-heroes, The New Mutants, Daredevil and Wolverine. However, it was DC as comics publisher that won the 1980s in literary and pulp storytelling. In one year, 1986 to 1987, they brought out Watchmen by Moore and Gibbons and The Dark Knight Returns by Miller. With Mouse, these big three are essential reading. Stand them against Dickens or Kubrick. Whether your joy is prose, cinema or epic ballads, their quality can't be disputed. That year the publisher was also changing the game as regards traditional pulp yarns. Crisis on Infinite Earths took apart 50 years of superhero world building. The Crisis was a large scale crossover. It merged continuities wrecked them and recreated heroes in relaunched books. Superman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, bold makeovers for old characters, creators with clear visions. DC would soon release more literary take on superhero fantasy in uh, the Vertigo imprint. But The effect of DC's 1986 to 87 year of change, it still affects the comic industry. Uh, Neil Gaiman quoted Milton in the pages of The Sandman. Steve Dillon evoked Sergio Leone And in Preacher. Innovators did their own things within the corporate camp. But, and it's a big but, the Drek got dreckier. In the eyes of the bankrollers, dark and gritty became synonymous with literary worth Since 1987, big publishers and anarchist creators confused the two. Alan Moore once famously provoked, DC Comics are still recycling the concepts and stories I came up with 30 years ago. And I think here Moore did himself a disservice. It's my opinion now recycling... What Frank Miller came up with in those days. A harsh, ugly society full of violence and illness. And after a time, every superhero comic looked like Angela's ashes. In the current crop it might be, perhaps in associated audio-video, less likely for the Falcon to take us to a fantastic other world and more likely to moan about his genital warts. But, and this is a but of this podcast, DC Comics in 1987 had a lighter, sociable trick up its sleeve, appreciated, yet culturally slower to impact. I handed the first issues of Justice League to old-time DC Comics fan Ian
1: to see what he made of them. You know, I stopped reading DC Comics quite a while ago. I, I just thought, you know, they were all doom and gloom and... When I was growing up, and maybe I'm showing my age, you know, I was an 80s kid. So comic books were fun and full of imagination. And nowadays I find that everything's just too dark. There's no hope. So when Andy recommended and actually sent me the first eight issues of this comic, he said, Ian, you're going to love this because this will fit right down your alley. And he's absolutely right. Justice League, what was it? Shag from the
0: Justice League bwa podcast calls it a workplace comedy. It's the thrilling stories of superheroes who joke and love between countering international incidents and interstellar ones too. My brother, Gavin Luke, has other thoughts on what JLI was.
2: Oh, uh, Justice League International was uh, my major sort of introduction to the big superhero sort of um, family idea. You'd always had these um, superhero teams where it was, they were introduced to you all at once and they tried to flesh out each individual character through the comics. But then you had JLI, which was mostly fully formed, um, established characters in their own comics, all been thrown together, and a lot of different styles of writing just meshed together, which is great, you get to see what the characters were like when they interacted sort of um, away from the spotlight behind closed doors. I mean you had uh, all the major sort of characters. Batman being Batman of course and and, uh, John John being this very serious person but with this dry sense of humour that you didn't really get to see. But then when he interacts with all the other people it's just you get to bounce off each other in a way that just wasn't something they could do on their own in their own comics. I mean, quite often it was it was quite juvenile and antagonistic with each other, but it could made for a, a more fun story. Uh, it wasn't just the battling supervillains, it was it those interactions, that family element between all the characters, which was uh, just uh, made for a better story for me than uh, some of the stuff was very driven by uh, the central plot, and that was it. But, yeah, you got to see all the different motivations of the characters, their... Um, what, what, what they wanted, why, why they were drawn together and sometimes that just didn't work with the group. I mean you had people leaving quite often or just just being in it for a few bits and then deciding nope that's, that's it. But you know you had uh, that sort of motivation of responsibility, wanting to be part of a big group or, uh, or even just money. <laughs> one of the few of the characters just wanted a decent paycheck, they had a certain set of skills and they wanted to use them. Um, the fact that they were doing good just made it easier
0: foremost, they're fun comics. These are comics you could give to your parents or your own child and rely on them being satisfied. They're the antidote to grim and gritty and good starter points for entry into DC's superhero pantheon. Bernie Decoven is the late author of website Deep Fun and Books, The Well Played Game and A Playful Path. I think Bernie would have enjoyed Justice League International a whole lot. His words... When I write about the fun connections between play, laughter, health and happiness, it's a connection to the experience of playing well together that I'm describing. And I think that's what a lot of this Justice League International run was about. Creators. For the new Justice League, editor Andy Heffler brought together two writers Keith Giffen, a great artist in tone and humour, on plot and breakdowns, and JMD Mateus, better known for his mature psychological work. Fans are aware it was an unusual move for a flagship title to bring in Kevin Maguire, not a well-known artist, and with little experience, it must be said. Kevin Maguire was the first of many creators on the book to excel stylistically, beginning with the first-issue cover. We're treated to a shot looking down on the huddled League members, yet their eyes look up to meet us. Their body language seems to suggest they're aware of us, but indifferent and concerned elsewhere. Miracle, Oberon, Canary, Light Beetle, Fate, Jean-Jeans and Shazam... Batman seems particularly annoyed with our interruption and in the centre foreground Green Lantern Guy Gardner arms folded in contempt asks the reader Want to make something of it? This iconic shot went on to be homaged 11 more times in Justice League stories by Giffen or Demetrius, as well as Giffen's Ambush Bug and on DC covers for the Titans, Fanboy, Deathstroke, a comic about KFC's Colonel Saunders, Young Justice, Primal Force, Grant Morrison's Multiversity... Probably countless other places too, including my favourite series from IDW, Transformers More Than Meets the Eye, and Lost Light by Nick Roche and Alex Milne, respectively. Maguire hit the ground running, portraying the leaguers with memorable expressions and body language. It's been said Maguire treats his characters as actors, with strong use of the space to live and perform in. Kevin Maguire disproved the propagated myth of Marvel's editors that DC created wooden heroes without their sole spark of empathy. And it was bullshit. These recreations forged ongoing points of identity with viewers. Giffen, De and Maguire were paired with inkers Al Gordon and Joe Rubenstein, and letterer Bob Lappin, who gave the book a distinctive character and feel. Despite DC's success and seeming investment in relaunching Justice League, all was tumultuous on a micromanagerial level.
3: Let's hear from Karen Flanagan. Hello guys, uh, thanks for having me on and thank you very much to the wise sage Andy Luke for asking me to speak on the subject of what's become affectionately known as Justice League International. I've decided to focus on the uh, the humour of the Justice League International piece um, which I was introduced to in the very late 80s as a backup strip in the Fleetway edition's version of Superman in the UK uh, where you would get basically a half a strip every other month which made for a very long process following storylines. As I understand it, the the humour in the series arises out of how it was set up. coming out of the Legends miniseries um, the editor uh, which I believe was Andy Helfer who does not get the credit I think he deserves uh, when when this is talked about uh, said that Keith Giffen would come into his office every day uh, and say simply the words Justice League before leaving again and after uh, several months of this happening uh, Giffen was offered the writing uh, job on Justice League along with uh, JMD DiMatteis who uh, was had been writing the Justice League Detroit era before Legends. So uh, I have to assume that the majority of the humour that exists in the Justice League International comes from Giffen and not Demetrius because uh, if it was from Dematteis, there's no evidence of it in his prior Justice League writing. Dematteis was and still is best known for his
0: darker but nuanced uh, darker fantasy... Conversely, Giffen is known for his wacky humour comics like Ambush Bug, and this style shows up when he works as an illustrator too. On JLI, Giffen is credited with plot and breakdowns for a few dozen issues. Dee Mateus is credited as, as the scriptwriter. Evidence points to an organic process between the two. You see, there's more than one way to skin a comic. The old Marvel method was a bear writer's plot. Told by the illustrators with the writers performing what was in essence a caption competition. There was a writer-led form of creation and development where panels were described in a sentence or two or three the telegram style script. Later we'd get the Alan Moore style long form letter writing for the artists where a page of comics might mean three pages of script before it. Justice League 1987's creators had a different way of working. It was more organic than formal, more akin to independent cartoonists. Mark Wade, who was the assistant editor at the time, explains. Here's the deal. Editor Andy Helfer talks over each month's story with Keith Giffen. Then, unlike most every other plotter we've ever seen, Keith doesn't type up a plot synopsis, Rather, he gives Kevin McGuire or whoever else pencils the book, penciled breakdowns, comic-sized on typing paper. In other words, rough layouts of each pages, which Kevin then enlarges and re-pencils in detail to produce ready-to-dialogue pages, which then go to Mark DeMatteis, who adds words and stuff, Bob Lapin, then letters Mark's dialogues onto the boards, Al Gordon, or Joe Rubenstein goes over Kevin's pencils with reproducible India ink Andy gives the book a last going over and Mark Wade packages the book for the production department and marvels at the fact that 16 months into this game and still none of these people can remember how many ends there are in John Johns which I've mispronounced because it's actually John Jones but I'm sticking to it because that's why I
1: like my John Johns When a man called Keith Griffin got to go ahead to do a Justice League comic, he found he had one, one major problem, and that was that the people responsible for, say, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, they were all very protective of those characters and weren't that keen on them appearing in this new Justice League iteration. What surprised me, one of the things I actually enjoyed was I got to see characters or read about characters that I didn't know much of. You've got the Black Canary, the Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel or now known as Shazam, Dr. Fate and Gardner, uh, the Green Lantern. Luckily for Griffin, they were able to get Batman and the Martian Manhunter, which is really the only connection to the older Justice League comics.
3: They were constrained coming out of the Legends Money Series. Uh, they they couldn't have the classic Justice League uh, lineup because Flash was being rebooted by Mike Barron, uh, Superman was being rebooted by John Byrne, and Wonder Woman was being rebooted by I believe oh god it escapes me it was, it was George Perez uh, so they, they basically had to make do with what they had so uh, they had a, a Justice League that wasn't very powerful, uh, g- generally underpowered, uh would be a fair assessment so they, they had to go with uh, character over big time superheroics and uh, it, it worked out quite well for them in my opinion uh, the humor uh, as it, in the initial going was less wacky and more sort of sitcom-ish uh, and I suppose the best the best description you could give to it be saying it was like a sitcom in comic form uh, you know there, there were very broad characters like uh, John Johns the Martian Manhunter was the straight man uh, Captain Marvel was like a simpering uh, do-gooder Guy Gardner was like a bully and then at the centre of that you had the, the relationship which is really the centre of it between uh, Booster Gold and the Blue Beetle who uh, d- despite whatever might come out of my mouth during the course of this is my favourite comics character ever I know some people um, have said that the characterizations of Booster Gold and Blue Beetle in the Justice League International have sort of ruined them forever. Uh, I know Len Wein who who rebooted Blue Beetle after um, Legends and I know Dan Jurgen seems to, to to think that, although few people have done more to ruin the character of Booster Gold than Dan Jurgens himself, but that, that's another another matter. They, they were really the driving force behind it, and for better or for worse, any of the good or bad was basically down to what was going on with those two characters, again, in my opinion.
0: Those editorial confines meant the league's lineup often changed. From restriction to innovation. As Ian and Gavin and others said, it was a great introduction to the world of DC Comics superheroes. A cast of a dozen became main fixtures. Jean-Jeans. Paternal. Stoic. The Last Martian. Loves Oreos. Maxwell Lord. Globally influencing executive and well-meaning manipulator. Oberon. Beleaguered old dwarf. Competent and cranky. Mr Miracle. Ex war child seeking an easy life, happily married to a dominatrix. Blue Beetle, inventor, joker, prankster, aspires to be slouching. Booster Gold, hustler from the future, loves those dollar dollar bills. Ice, former ice goddess, naive to the big city. Fire, pushy and charming, embraces a challenge, doesn't suffer fools. Guy Gardner, a fool, a cretin, moron, obnoxious pig and one of the League's most powerful members. Batman, the Dick Knight detective. Rocket Red, armoured Russian barhouse and everyone's favourite uncle. Captain Adam, military leader, out of place and out of time.
1: Um, one of my favourite scenes is where Gardner decides, you know what, I could do a better job of leading the Justice League. So challenges Batman to a fight. So Batman being Batman just punches him in the face, knocking him out.
0: Now look, Bats, you can hatch all the plans you want. But from here on in, Guy Gardner's working alone. You so much as
3: sneeze without my permission, you're going to regret it.
1: That I'd like to see. One punch, do one punch. But what I love that the writers did, they have... Gardner staying knocked out for the rest of the issue it was just so funny that's what these comics are at the core is yes they have the big bad threat but it's examining their relationships and how they get on together and how ultimately the end they can put their differences aside and save the day the one punch moment in
0: issue 5 is a touchstone for a generation a landmark of the heart for many I appreciated how the hilarious farce was disingenuously billed on the cover as a big punch-up fight between superheroes. It was a twist and a trope. Giffen and DiMatteis never intended to create a comedy book, but the five-page scene in hindsight seems like a statement of intent. In issue 8, Moving Day, the new Justice League, disorganised and lacking confidence, ...move their headquarters to a building full of structural faults. Moving day sticks a landing tone. (laughs) Um, Cover to cover hilarity ensues. Two years into the book's run... ...Justice League International's popularity spawned an offshoot. Justice League Europe. A natural outgrowth from JLI... ...with Giffen and Demetrius at the helm... ...with their winning styles... Adventures in the JLA were set in the embassy in Paris and later in London. James Roberts, an admirable author credited with making sociological transformers literature, mm -hmm, talks about finding the Justice League in his native home.
4: Hi, so Andy's asked me to talk a little bit about my love affair with justice league international and justice league europe and uh, how it influenced my writing of more than meets the eye and lost light and i guess to talk a little bit about the uh, the things that make it a good series in fact possibly the best series um i'm going to start in a roundabout way because uh, i uh, i live in guernsey and we've well, with a couple of brief exceptions in the 90s, um, we've never had a comic shop. And so, like many people in the UK, um, without access to a comic shop, um, if I was to collect comics in the 80s, I was reliant on newsagents. And very occasionally, in uh, in a couple of the newsagents over here, you'd find some DC, some, some, some imported DC comics. Uh, never Marvel, but you'd get some... Uh, yeah some some batmans some supermans occasionally say a doom patrol um captain atom uh stuff like that and there was one shop opposite the uh, college over here um it, it was a grocer's but it had for some reason it had a, a good selection of american uh, american dc comics and um, when i was about 12 i guess 11 or 12 i used to pop in in the off chance that there'd be something decent to get, um, I was more of a Marvel guy, but you know, I'd always flick through the Supermans and the Batmans. And then one day there was Justice League Europe, issue one. Um, because it was an issue one, uh, it, I thought, you know, that was an attraction. Um, so I got that, um, so I could be in at the beginning. I, I must have known about other. I must have known about Justice League America at that point. Whether I knew about JLI. I don't know, I can't recall, but um, I bought Justice League Europe issue one and loved it. And I'm, I'm trying not to exaggerate, but it, it did, it it changed the way I perceived comic books and it changed my understanding of what um, what, what superhero stories could be. And um, at that time, I was a big Marvel UK fan, of, you know, unsurprisingly, I was a huge transformers uk fan uh, simon Furman fan and, and that told stories that i loved but they, they were stories of a certain type um and i was yes 1988 i was getting into 2000 ad andy knows i'm a big zenith fan as well so yeah 2000 ad comic um the stories tended to have a certain sensibility that's what made them great but you know they they looked at things from a certain angle um and i thought jle If anyone calls it that. But Justice League Europe uh, did the same thing. It it looked at superhero uh, or or ensemble comics, the superhero teams in a different way. It was informal, engaging, funny, of course, uh, tongue in cheek, all the things which, you know, I I would very shortly thereafter learn uh, sort of originated in Justice League International. Anyway, I, one of the other things you could get on the UK newsstands um, in that you know, at that time was um, Batman and Superman um, magazines. I guess I mean they were larger format. But they were reprints of American comics, and um, there was a Batman, Superman one, and oh God, I can't remember now. I think it was I think it was Superman that reprinted Justice League International. This was uh, these were by London editions. So I would have bought um, the Superman issues uh, on the strength of seeing Justice League-related uh, content in there. And I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's how I discovered Justice League International.
0: Over the following five years, the Giffen-D.Mathaeus Justice League books would cover the birth of a new league, Maxwell Lord's Secret Life, a supervillain's foreign coup, an interstellar commerce fleet, war and its aftermath, espionage and assassination, refugees' survival chances, zombie 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 in your head, a very silly doggy and a quite dangerous cat, an attack on a global capital and a story of lost America. All ripping yarns told with utmost humour, charm, and warmth, and now I'm going to ruin those for you by analysing them with my own brand of academic fuckery. The Manga Khan Saga. In an early epic, a vast alien invasion fleet comes to Earth. Their demand shop or die. However, the alien hordes of aggressive capitalism are turned away by the Justice League warriors. The fruits of our own aggressive capitalism and its exports, including weaponry, serves as social commentary. That's subtext. On the surface, it's a fun romp with adventure and sci-fi metaphor, none of which feels like we are gathered here today to denounce the evils of capitalism in a heavy-handed message Broken down by the following Hectoring Bullet Points. The League's Mr Miracle, Escape Artist Supreme, stows away in the fleeing seal ship, and in doing so, Prisoner Miracle becomes key to opening up a once sealed off trade market. Market forces erupt into a war of bomb and bullet when negotiations with despotic regime fall apart. Three competing groups come up against a leading stakeholder. That world's God. And he decides the war is tarnishing his brand and puts a stop to it. That's right. In a delicious piece of super commentary, aggressive capitalism competes for the unique point of sale and distribution of God and gets knocked back. Kevin Maguire's interstellar world building finds his own Jack Kirby course with challenging shaped ships, species, and cosmic debris. Pages are routinely packed with environmental detail. It introduces us to regulars Fire and Ice and their romance, the home shopping network villain Mindy Khan, and doggy hero Green Lantern Gnort, who the JLI Bwahaha podcast describes as Jar Jar Binks done right. Both of these characters would be recurring features too. It's also a primer story for Dark Comics fan fave, the sadistic space vampire Lobo, who loves his little fishies.
1: The story is uh, pretty basic. The Justice League has to team up to recover one of their own and, and fight an alien enemy known as the Cluster. But that's really not what these comics are really about. These comics are really lighthearted, but at its core examines the relationships and the characteristics of each of our heroes. Out in the world these uh, heroes, to the public eye, have to put on a very professional face to the world. But back in headquarters in Justice League they're not as professional, they're arguing with each other, and some of the silly shenanigans that goes on over these issues is just so much fun and so refreshing to some of the stuff we're getting nowadays. It's also a story which continues
0: to ve- develop the romance of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, a central relationship in the book which Kieran mentioned earlier and Gavin expands upon.
2: Of course you had all these like pairings where you know the people just worked well off each other Um, the big one of course for me growing up anyway was Beetle and Booster Um, the Ted core, Blue Beetle very um, How do I describe it Chandler-esque sort of dealing with you know the situations through humour and sarcasm and you know to me growing up that that was that was a character I could identify with Uh, and you had him pairing up with uh, Booster Gold the guy from the future who initially a little cocky thinking he knew it all was quite Dedicated to you know trying to do his best, sort of being uh, not serious but close enough, and they just brought each other down, made each other worse in a, a social way, but at the same time worked well together uh, for superheroes. And it was good to see that sort of dynamic. I, of course, I loved that as a kid, but it was one of those things that the more and more I kind of I got older, I kind of realised that that's terrible. That 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 sort of. Social dynamic is is bad for them, and I mean the series explores that. But um, I didn't really pick up on it when I was first reading it. So I came back to Um, always, always use uh, always think of that episode issue with uh, Guy Gardner. I mean Guy Gardner from right from the start was a bit of a a tool. (laughs) Um, He he does that sort of he he hits his head. He comes a nice guy and. Gets along with Ice, Fire and Ice, who, who joined the team later. And then when he goes back to being Guy Gardner again, um, he still wants to have a relationship with Ice. And, you know, she, her being the nice superhero, just she, you know, she wants that. But he, he there's that date issue where he tries as hard as Guy Gardner, the guy that nobody really likes, likes. Um, you can appreciate you can understand some of the stuff he does but nobody likes him so to see him get his comeuppance on that issue as a kid was great you know because it's like he's a bully you know nobody liked a bully when you're a kid but as an adult you think Booster and Beetle really just took apart. I mean they found the one thing he cared about that he was actually trying for ice and, and they just sabotaged that they just did their best to you know not caring about how ice felt not caring it they just wanted to ruin Guy and that just, that hit me a bit harder as I grew up. I mean, it was a bit of a dick move. Uh, and it's one of those things I kind of come back to.
0: The Americans Don't Get to Win, or, Bialia, my by Published prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, the heroes run a file of Cold War protocols, again and again, Tensions with Russia are soothed when the League are politicked and operating as a peacekeeping arm of the United Nations. The Soviet allies in Eastern Europe state of Bialia are not so easily appeased. Byalia’s ruler, the comedic sneak colonel Hujavdi, suffers the League's illegal incursions and later is forced to toe the political line as a non-member state keen to keep their allies' favour. Harjavti cares little for his people and faces an uprising, though not in a simple proletariat versus despot sense. When the UN backs a league, their jurisdiction, shifting from America to international, causes a chain reaction. Their appointment creates an obsolescence of the Global Guardians, Earth's former premier superhero group based in Eastern Europe. Not for want of trying, Harjavti's impotency to act against the JLI stirs a coup from within his own inner circle, conspirators working with former Global Guardians who build on Harjavdi's own brutal policies. The Baelian stories have all the political juggling of a John Le story with the explosions of the Bond franchise. The moving geopolitical parts, already much in play in the real world, are examined. There are half-dozen Baelian stories running a few issues each, dripped throughout the series, so we see the JLI's effect on the fictional nation over time, globally and locally. If for a moment I draw from Marshall McLuhan's media theory, giffen De and the artists look at what this new international league retrieves, reverses, makes obsolete and amplifies or enhances. Arms distribution. Balkanisation, fragmenting larger regions into smaller ones with hostile results, is a recurring theme in Justice League. Bo-ha-ha-ha. It manifests in arms distribution in Bialia, and when a member of the League loses a power rod, and in a tale of Tortoloni, a villain who wins a cachet of supervillain weapons, although that one is a fallout from a game of poker. Consequences of fallout also crop up in data theft, as a tabloid journalist uncovers key identities uh, in the League's private lives. The effects of per governance are told through personal stories of angry, odd-job men without scruples, ready to make use of bad situations. Author James Roberts again, talking about the key role dialogue played in storytelling.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say what I said about Justice League Europe, but kind of amplify it. Justice League International um, changed the game for me, really. It was the first time I'd seen a dialogue-driven comic where the dialogue wasn't simply a vehicle for exposition. Uh, now I know that you know, there'd been, there'd been light-hearted stuff, there'd been asides, there'd been banter. Of course, all this stuff had, had had long happened in comics, but JLI was the first time I'd seen people having conversations that were not simply about advancing the plot, and that were not simply about, um, you know, trading banter um well you know I'm, I'm making a distinction between sort of humor and banter in this in this instance but instead you know the dialogue in Jli was used to advance your understanding of the characters to develop the characters through the conversations through the many conversations you got a much deeper understanding of what made the characters tick uh, a greater insight into their motivations and that in turn of course made you care more deeply for the characters. It was the first time I'd seen really uh, sitcom sentimentality on a comic book page. And it's striking how many issues, certainly in the early days, kicked off not sort of with a fight scene or not kind of in media res, but in, in conversation, you know, um, usually taking place within the, you know, within the headquarters, you know, characters sparking off one another. And that didn't feel like a cheat. It didn't feel boring. It, it, it was what you expected. It was actually similar in that sense to a, to a sitcom again. So there's a fantastic sort of economy of storytelling, uh, even though, you know, you didn't have 80 percent of the ages devoted to a slugfest. You know, the, the plot was advanced carefully, cunningly and almost in disguise, really, because it was it was advanced through, you know, character interactions and and I'd say the same about sitcoms. When you come to love characters um, and their kind of default setting is casual interactions um, and, you know, when you can allow and and be brave enough to admit humour into your storytelling, it makes those moments of drama and tension and tragedy a thousand times more effective. You know, your connection to the characters, you know, because they, they seem more human, is deeper And therefore, when bad things happen to them, it's felt all the more keenly. And that's why, you know, um, very deftly, um, you know, Giffen and um, Dematteis can really swing from, you know, laugh out loud comedy to to shocking tragedy in in the space of an issue. You know, it was the contrasts that uh, gave these stories their depth. And it didn't feel like mood mood whiplash in a contrived way. Um, It didn't feel like cheating. It felt entirely natural.
0: For the most, JLI was well regarded and a commercial success. And we'll get to that in a bit. But a question hung over it. Should a funny book be funny? Kieran Flanagan wasn't alone in having one or two reservations
3: about how far
0: that can go it
3: did, it didn't start to get really really wacky until the mid teens and they did they did do some stuff that was uh it was less sort of sitcomy and more sort of Cartoony. So uh, there was a storyline where they had to fight some miniature aliens, and there was a storyline where um, they they were fighting wacky vampires. Was a, a lot, a lot of wackiness, you know, which, which was not necessarily as good. Although as a kid, I didn't really care that much. Um, but I, I would recommend, in terms of, of stories that were really good, uh, I would check out uh, the, the story with the Gray Man that they did in the first six issues. was was really strong. And also, and this is on the wacky end of things, but there's a story where they introduce the character, uh, the Galactus parody, uh, who's called Mr. Nebula, interplanetary designer, which is a choice, choice. On the other other end, the the really wacky, so wacky that's kind of off-putting, I I would say, would be the the, the storyline where the purchase an island in the caribbean to set up a justice league resort uh, which then turns out to be sentient uh, is pretty bad as is uh, almost anything with the with justice league antarctica in it the trilogy set
0: on the pacific island kui 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 involves hustlers Booster Gold and Blue Beetle opening Club JLI, a themed casino resort with staff in costumes, where one can visit the Fire Nice Bar and Bistro or enjoy VIP lounge treatment in Batman's Batcave. In my view, it's sheer reflection of revelry on the JLI's own popularity in 1989, the year of the Batman. But I think the silly wacky works and comes with built-in limits. The Cooey 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 serial's third act shifted tonally to a fight for survival against a harsh environment. Giffen and is established and were establishing stories where funny situations became tragic things and were prepared to lay out tragic things happening to funny characters.
3: There's a really excellent story in the mid-30s where uh, Despero, who's an old Justice League villain, attacks and basically decimates them, kills a few people. Despero, cheating superhero grief and tapping into mass
0: consciousness. Following Club JLI, a low-key farcical run-up and the arrival of an alien invested in revenge. In many ways, Despero is a prototype and lesser variant of Doomsday, the murderous monolith that killed Superman a few years later. The death of Supes is indicative of death in comics generally, i.e. give it a few years and they'll be back as good as new. Demetrius and Giffen skirted this revolving door of mortality with a character-based plot replacing one of the League with a robot duplicate. When Despero murders a Leaguer, in many ways the heart of this family, we the reader are already privy to the switch and bait. In the aftermath, we observe... The grief, Stripped of the artifice, a rawness pervades the fiction. We interpret the group's pain and vulnerability in what it is for anyone who has lost someone close. Guy Gardner, who we've been taught to despise until now, affects us with his noble traits and our fondness for other characters is inverted or turned upside down. It's a very real study of a universal, probably the only universal experience, death, and what truly comes after. Artistry. This is mostly a podcast about writing, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the illustrators for a bit, joined as they are in comics form storytelling. After two years and with the launch of Justice League Europe, artist Kevin Maguire stepped away from the franchise. this time he'd created a memorable legacy of style for his replacements to build upon. Most of these artists had little in terms of experience, as was the case with Kevin when he started out. However, history repeated itself and it all came out of the gate and hit the ground running. Ty Templeton brought a cartoonier effect and boasted a great use of space portraying giants in intimacy. Mike McCone alternated with Templeton, eventually replacing him and brought a more traditional style somewhere between Templeton and Maguires. McCone's penchant for figures standing three-dimensional from panels was picked up and expanded upon by the fourth newcomer, Adam Hughes, who had served on the book for 14 issues. The star behind critically acclaimed indie serial Castle Waiting, Linda Medley, took on five issues earlier in her career. The final batch were handled by Chris Wozniak, ex penciler of Blue Beetle, and only a few years out of high school. The Comics Journal points out that Wozniak brought a balance between the beefy and the cartoony, with Walt Simonson levels of stellar power. Spin off. Books featuring popular League members Booster Gold and Blue Beetle have been cancelled early in the days of the JLI's run. But Justice League Boahaha, as it's also known, was a success in its time. It spawned annuals and specials, Justice League Quarterly, full of new material and Justice League Europe an organic outgrowth of the core modus operandi. The longevity of the success is owed to Giffen and Demetrius maintaining a level of great authorial freedom. On these derivatives um, and directing them, and as well as exporting the Boahaha styles to associated books, Doctor Fate and Mister Miracle, uh, later Green Lanterns, well, three Green Lanterns, featured as regular characters in JLI, so they were practically writing that book too. The Boahaha era was brought to an end in a 16 issue crossover between the two main books. Breakdowns is a lot like the finale of Seinfeld. It goes on for far too long and weighs too heavy with fan service callbacks that achieve little purpose but to say we're winding up, we're all done here. Thematically it concerns itself with the transition to a traditional fair run by a new creative team and thus feels apologetic, particularly in light of the death superman and mainstream comics greater sly to grim and gritty and shitty. Throughout the years, the writers together with Kevin Maguire, Letter Bob Lappin and others have been called to revisit the characters in style with two miniseries, Kieran
3: and I would definitely recommend the, the rebooted series that they did in the early 2000s if if only for the names uh, formerly known as Justice League and the excellent I can't believe it's not the Justice League which was uh, the, the last strip that came out before they killed the Blue Beetle off. although it got better my personal favourite is a one shot DC
0: Retroactive Justice League of America the 90s Published in 2011, which returns Injustice League, a group of hilariously incompetent supervillains. Check that out if you haven't already. However, there was one spin off fans clamoured for and appeared to have pushed the writers towards. A holy grail of a series. Even announced, but never developed, never published, Blue and Gold would follow the bromance of Ted Cord and Michael John Carter. Of their time they were the Hawkeye and BJ, the Troy and Abed. Blue Beetle and Booster Gold are frequently named fan favourites who weathered attempts to break them up by revisionists in the ages of dark and dull periodicals. There's something magical about friendship. Earlier this year, DC Comics gave in and are currently publishing *Blood Gold*, written by Booster's creator Dan Jurgens and art by Ryan Sook. The new book doesn't seem to feature the comedic element, and it remains to be seen if they can recapture that original brotherly bond. This incarnation of the Justice League, as you've heard, is still enjoyed by fans today. Over on the Fire and Water Network, the Justice League Ha podcast goes through each issue. Host the irredeemable Shag employs a style which captures the spirit of these books, revisiting them with rotating co-hosts. Shag states the point of his pod is to build a community, and that's very evident in the comments and interactions with listeners, and fitting to the book's spirit. So, just as the Boahaha podcast, some of you will want to go there. Let's return to our twenty twenty one test subject, Ian Lawther and see if he was
1: convinced by the first eight issues. If you haven't read these comics, um, I found on Amazon an omnibus, uh Volume 1 called Justice League International Born Again. I would really recommend you give it a go. It's available on paperback and Kindle. I think this comic is genius. I really do, because as I said before, at the time, everything was going dark. This was just the opposite. It went lighter in tone and it was a big gamble I would say uh, but one that I think has paid off because certainly nowadays you know I think that's why this comic is remembered so fondly is because it's so different to everything else at the time Um you will have just you will just have a lot of fun and joy reading these comics like I do in fact I've went out and bought volume one and volume two of the omnibuses, and I so thought I can continue this story. I believe there was like one to sixty issues in total, and then it went on to spawn other series of Justice League comics. So yeah, Andy, thank you very much for sending the comics to me. I really enjoyed it.
0: I call that a win. JLI's impact on Marvel, DC, and the big publishers has been slower to take root than what we would call... the Batman of things? The work of Peter David, one of Marvel's star writers of the last 30 years, certainly subscribes to the deep fun approach. The Hulk, X Factor, Young Justice and more all put character and dialogue, often humorous, at the forefront. There was also Dan Raspler's 1997 series, Young Heroes in Love, more recently, we've been treated the likes of Squirrel Girl, Lil Gotham, Transformers More Than Meets the Eye and Lost Light. I asked Transformers author James Roberts about the effect JLI
4: had on those series. For anybody there, anyone listening that has read some of what I've done um, in More Than Meets the Eye and in Lost Light, you know, you'll you'll absolutely see the echoes of what, uh, what I discovered in Justice League International. You know, I... I tried my best to try and emulate some of that Um, i took a lot of lessons from jli principally about uh, you know the ability to hook an audience um into the lives of the characters by examining what they do during their downtime Um, you know by building on those classic sitcom tropes of people that are um, forced by circumstance to coexist you know confined or enclosed or entrapped uh, by duty or by as i say by circumstance you know they they don't like each other necessarily or they don't think they do at first but they're in stressful or, or non-ideal situations, and it's through that type of low-level domestic conflict uh, that their characters come to the fore. Um, it's like a like a surrogate family situation. So I so I leaned heavily on that in more than meets the eye, and I was also banking on the same kind of formula that uh, you know that if if you examine the lives of your characters during what appear to be you know the mundane times, almost really the Like Justice League International did so well, it often examined the stuff that would happen in between the issues of other comics. But take that, you know, bring that to the fore, make that the centre, invert it, um, so that that becomes, you know, you you're foregrounding the stories in the downtime. Um, That seemed to work for them, and I tried to make it work for me. And as I'm sort of sitting here talking um, at you, I'm uh, looking at the uh, the omnibus, the, vo- the first volume of Justice League International Omnibus. And I think it's the most I've ever spent on a single book. Uh, and that's kind of testament to the huge amount of space it takes up in my heart as as comics done right, as superhero comics done exceptionally well. Um, and And, you know, stepping outside of the medium of character work done exceptionally well and how to juggle multiple characters and to how to use them and their interactions with each other to um, arrive at a deeper understanding you know, as to what makes them tick. So, yes, that is why JLI, for me, will always be number one. Um, I don't. It's, it's had many imitators, myself included. I don't think anyone's ever done it better. The extent to which it was a product of its time, I don't know. I think a lot of, a lot of what it's about, Um, a lot of it how it uh, you know how it tells those stories it's pretty timeless um yeah and I think I I mean I think it's much imitated I think it's much admired but I still don't think it gets the credit it deserves I think it should be spoken about uh, you know um, in the same breath as uh, as The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke and all the other kind of Um, relatively grown-up, quote-unquote, grimdark 80s high points. Uh, Yeah, I think it stands shoulder-to-shoulder with the best of them. So that's why I love it. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, James,
0: Ian, Kieran, Gavin, and you for listening. Just
1: one last note. Uh, I just want to say, Andy, congratulations on Occupied. You've been spending years on that that book, and you've got it out. So congratulations. Well done. Why, thank you, Ian. A true ally. I wanted to do this episode on
0: the JLI for all the reasons. All the reasons. And one of them is the release of Occupied, a magnificent novel charting the lives of Northern Irish activists in a long-term campout protest. Like James, I felt JLI sits as part of a tradition of bold dialogue-driven comedy-drama. When I first encountered in the TV series MASH, economically paced character based interactions. Others spring to mind or Stephen Moffat's 42 episode run on ITV's Press Gang and Grant DeNaylor's Red Dwarf. I've tried to put lessons from all of these things into Occupied. It's an ensemble character tale full of activists with lofty ambitions, the visiting public, celebrities and trolls. Though small in profile, the occupiers give food, homes, trading and social support. They become family amid the mud, snow, insomnia and paranoia against the dying of the light. You can pick up the book now through Amazon. In episode 17 of The Drone Look, I'll be casting my eye over... Well, it could go either way. It could be Off its press Gang or it could be More Than Meets The Eye by James Roberts and uh, an array of wonderful artists. If you're hungry for the podcast sooner, why not subscribe to my Patreon where I publish weekly? I'm a full-time author so it's guaranteed you'll get first-look poems, short stories, comics, and commentary. That's patreon.com forward slash Andy Luke. Thank you. Yeah, slash Patreon.com for slash look. Patreon.com slash look. Patreon.com slash
3: form of identification worn by marshals, armbands, coats, other coats it is.
0: Decide with protests to take part in as a group.
3: And for argument's
0: sake, what if someone decided to protest the movie? We are anonymous. We are no one's lackeys. We do not need Coco. What are you protesting about anyway?